Good morning. The coolest thing just happened to me. I almost got run over by all the kids running out, which is really cool. Well, it's exciting to see you. I will tell you whether if you're in the house, you already know this. If you're at home, you're watching virtually, we're going to take communion at the end of the service. So you need to get your grape juice or your water or your coffee or your orange juice and your your toast, your biscuit, whatever you're using as your elements, you can get them ready. We're going to take communion together at the end of our time today. We were talking about Easter Sunday and about each day is a dawning, the dawning of that first Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. We talked about that and how special it was, not just historically, but it's a perpetual reminder to us every day with the sunrise that our God is there and that he's given you another day, a dawning of another day to, to glorify him, to share uh, in the midst many times of, of difficult. You don't know what a day entails. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know whether the circumstances of that day are going to be good or going to be bad or uh, sometimes even horrific. And yet God says, I knew in advance, I'm with you in the middle of it, and I'm going to carry you through. And, and I know Mary and I have experienced, particularly in, since November of last year, it's been a very, very difficult time, and just miraculously how God has done some things in our lives. And my sweet wife is here today. Uh, and it's... It, uh, I never get nervous when I preach, I don't think, but I'm sweating, I don't know. Maybe it's just being around her is making me sweat like it was back in high school, I don't know. So I told you a few weeks ago, I don't know if I told you or told somebody else I've talked so they saw a picture of Mary when, when she was, uh, I don't know if it was a high school picture or when she was working as a young lady, and so a guy had been a friend of mine for years, and he looked at that picture and she said, he said, how did you ever get that? Remember that, my brother. So, as you get older, things, uh, I don't look near as good as I used to. I don't know what it is. All right, turn to Esther, chapter 7. Again, I want to thank those of you that were able to, to show up yesterday and participate in the help group and help us, uh, again, uh, help, help folks. And there was no church right down the street there in Bartlett doing it, and there's a number of them, others that are. But uh, just thank you for being there, making it possible, and you just continue to, to pray for Chris. And that's, that's a lot of work, that uh, what he's turned that thing into, and it's a lot of continual work. You keep praying for Chris Ellison and all that uh, goes on with the help group. It's, it's very, very special. Our prayer is within a short period of time, we're also going to be able to get back into doing the, the uh, clothes ministry as well. So we'll see how all that works out. All right, if, you, if you'll turn to Esther chapter 7, we're going to wrap this up today, this particular thing, and then uh, next week we'll get into Esther 9 and, and uh, finish this book and we'll see where God leads us from there. What we started looking at last week in Esther 7 and 8 is dealing with your enemies. And we finished number one on your handout. If you'll look at it, it's important for us to remember during this time and this series we're looking at in the book of Esther is what time is it? And for us to always remember as believers, we're talking about the dawning of a new day, that every day it's our time. 
It's your time. God has us culturally and historically placed in the church age. This moment in time is our time. And the key verse there from Esther 4.14, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Well, if I'm alive, and I think I am, if I'm breathing, and I'm born again, this is my time. This is your, and if you think that you're not able or effective or God wants to use you for the kingdom during this time, then you're calling him a liar. He saved you to be his ambassador for this moment, moment in time. You don't have to have, if you don't have speaking gifts, that doesn't mean you can't share the gospel. Whatever your gifts are, God gave them to you to use on behalf of others during this time on planet Earth. This is your time. For the church, it's our time. We are in the church age. And for whatever reason, God saved me, saved you, for this moment in time to glorify him. We should be excited about that. And you can see the verse of Proverbs and Daniel. And I, and I love the message of all of Scripture, particularly those two passages. God is saying... Everybody needs to know, and this is Nebuchadnezzar being quoted in, from Daniel, the king of Babylon, a pagan, that God, of the God of Daniel, the God of the Hebrews, he is God. He is in control. There is no authority that he does not ordain, and there is no king that he is not sovereign over. He is the king of kings. So for us who are his children, who are his ambassadors, who are the bride of Christ, we are his family. We should brag on our daddy. We thought that we did that whole series on who's your daddy. I want people to know who my heavenly father is. I want them to know who the God who created the universe really is, not who they think he is. And one of the things that we, if you study the book of Esther, it very much is, is his, it's historical account, but it very much is God allegorically reminding us, almost like a, a nine, ten chapter parable God reminding us, uh, number one, he's God. And that he's always there providentially taking care of us. We've mentioned it several times, but as we head toward the end, I think it's important to, to mention again. The name of God is not mentioned one time in the book of Esther. Yet this was one of the most critical moments in the history of the nation of Israel and the history of humanity in bringing the Messiah and God's name is not mentioned once. Yet, as we've seen, God is in control. It is not Xerxes. It is not Haman. It is not Persia. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our God, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the message of the book of Esther, that we seek the will of God. And even though his name is not mentioned, he is at work, controlling everything. So we saw as we get into Esther 7 and 8, what we looked at last week in chapter 7, is we have, and we need to always be reminded that we have the protection of God from our enemies. And we have to do two things. Number one, take your enemies to God. And number two, leave them there. Because God tells us in Galatians and in other places, he is not mocked. That's one of the messages, primary messages of Daniel. It is the message of Daniel. And the primary message, one of the primary messages of the book of Esther. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will what? Reap. I read a cute story this week about 
uh, a farmer. And this newspaper, the country newspaper, and they put out a series of articles on why, what was the value of going to church. We actually preached on that several years ago. What's the value of going to church? A lot of people say, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. Well, there's some incredible values in, in, in sharing and in living out your faith that where we need to be with each other. And so they wrote, this, this uh, paper wrote a series of articles on the value of going to church. And then some people sent in letters to the editor years ago, and they sent in these letters, and one of the letters the editor said, here's my letter, I know you won't print it, but here it is. He said, I did an experiment. I planted my crops on Sunday. I weeded them, took care of them, always on Sunday. I cultivated them, always on Sunday. I harvested them on Sunday. I hauled them, put them together, hauled everything to the market on Sunday. And in October, I had the greatest harvest I've ever had. And I had as much, if not more, than all the farmers around me that went to church. Where was God all that time? And the editor printed the letter, and then he had, in the editor's response, he said this, your, your mistake is thinking God settles his debts in October. You can mock God, and many do, but you will reap what you sow. We will be judged by the words of Jesus Christ. He's the only mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So it is important for us, and we're going to, as we see today, again, to realize we have enemies. We have to take them to God. We have to leave them with God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not ours. We're not, in, we're not into the vengeance business. We're into the loving and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ business. So you get to chapter 8 in Esther. We just saw in chapter 1, protection of our God. He's He's handling it, even though we may not know how and we may not understand what's the circumstances. God is always in them with us. He's in the fire with us. Secondly is the provision of God for my enemies in Esther chapter 8. Most importantly, we need to understand above all, number one, our position in Christ. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. On that day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. And so the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Context. We saw last week at the end of... Remember, Haman has been the villain throughout this story. He, he had gotten Xerxes to write the decree that the, every Jew in, in the kingdom of Persia, which had been everyone, all of them, were going to be annihilated, wiped off the planet, and Xerxes had signed the decree. We saw last week how God was in the process of reversing those circumstances, and now we see it go full circle. Haman has been hanged on the same gallows, he, basically it was an impalement, the same gallows that he had had built huge, 75 foot tall, for Mordecai, his hated enemy of the Jews, the enemy, he was Jewish, Haman had been impaled on the same gallows he had built by order of Xerxes. And God has reversed these circumstances. Tony Evans puts it this way, 
when life goes left on us, when it doesn't make sense, when it seems unfair, when it's definitely wrong, we're still called to believe in this God who can make the incomprehensible make sense. But too often we try to illegitimately take matters into our own hands to control our circumstances, but we often wind up making them messier, end quote. We're to trust God, take our enemies to God, leave them with God, and revel in the fact that I am a child of God. The greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. We talked about our greatest enemy being Satan, and our other greatest enemy is ourself. And we got to get out of the way and let God do what he wants to do and trust him. So now you get to chapter 8, which you just read the first two verses. It's three months later. The custom in Persia was if you were a condemned criminal like Haman, the estate of that person, Haman, after he's executed, reverts back to the king, Xerxes. And the king, Xerxes, gets to do whatever he wants to with that estate. Now, if you remember going back to some of our studies in in, uh, Esther, how much was Haman worth when he was impaled? And by the way, how much of it did he take with him? What was he worth? Vast millions upon millions, if not billions of dollars, because of what he had done through Xerxes. And that estate reverts back to Xerxes. And he gets to decide who's going to get it and who's to give it to. God have a sense of humor. He gives it to Haman or Esther to do with as they please. The hated enemy of Haman is rewarded by the most powerful man in the world who is a pagan. Don't miss the providential care of God. Doesn't mean you're always going to get money. This is not a name it and claim it sermon. But what it does mean is that does God know your needs? And will he provide for you? And sometimes abundantly provide for you. And that's exactly, they were, remember the circumstances, Tony Evans quote. Just a few months ago, what were Mordecai, Mordecai, Esther, and the rest of the Jews in Persia, which was vast, what were they looking at? We're going to have to fight just to survive. We're going to be annihilated by the rest of Persia. The Persians are coming after us to kill us, to wipe us out. And now Haman has been given the entire estate of, excuse me, Mordecai has been given the entire estate of Haman. Esther admits that Mordecai is her cousin, reality, her also like her stepfather, that she's a Jew. Talked about that a little bit last week. He brings Mordecai before Xerxes. Mordecai is promoted to prime minister. He takes the job who held three months before. Haman did. Mordecai is now given that job. If you go back, by the way, and look through, like for example, the book of Daniel, Daniel, who was 15 years old, became the second most powerful man in the world under king after king after king. Same picture, Joseph became the second most powerful man in the world under Pharaoh of Egypt. God was just reminding Pharaoh, and he was reminding Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar, and Belshazzar, and all of Darius, all these kings. He was from Cyrus, he was reminding them, you may be king of the world, I own the world. I made it. I spoke it into existence. And if I don't want you to be king anymore, guess what? You won't be king anymore. And you will do what 
I have planned for you. So their circumstances, God has completely reversed. He's promoted the prime minister. He's given the signet ring that Haman had worn. Literally, Xerxes took the ring off Haman's hand, and now he's giving it to Mordecai. Now you, Mordecai, speak. You're now prime minister of Persia. You now speak and act on behalf of the most powerful man in the world, Xerxes, emperor of Persia. For just a moment, flip over to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. King Xerxes imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media, are not, these not written in the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia, I mean, it's history. For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Xerxes, and he was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Mordecai, by the sovereignty of God, became the prime minister of Persia. Now let's stop for a moment. Remember your position in Christ. You're in Christ. The Bible says, quote, you're seated in the heavenlies. Romans chapter 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. That's who you are. Mentioned earlier, the ambassador for Christ, child of God, Christ follower, Christian. You're a child of the creator of the universe is your father. That's your position. You don't abdicate that. You don't lose it. Nobody can take it away from you. That's who you are. And every day, you just wake up saying, okay, Dad, what do you want me to do today to let people see who you are, that they'll be drawn to you? So then you get to verse 3, chapter 8, your plea. Remembering what your position is, your plea. Chapter 8, verse 3, Esther spoke again to the king. She fell down at his feet and she implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews to annihilate all of them. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. It means you are received favorably. So Esther arose as she stood before the king and, he, and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadai, the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Remember Haman's decree, signed by Xerxes, which made it Xerxes' decree, was to annihilate all the Jews. It's still, at this moment in time, a law of the Medes and the Persians, which could not be annulled or violated by anyone, including Xerxes himself. And it's to take place eight months from this moment in time. Now, Esther and Mordecai appear to be safe because of their positions. As far as the rest of the Jews that are out there, they are on their own. And that law is still in effect. So she pleads with Xerxes for her people. 
Again, Esther's come full circle. When we first saw her, she wasn't sure she was going to do this. And she's now become full circle. These are my people, and I plead for them. If I have found favor, and the word is grace, in your sight, would you reverse that decree? She falls down at his feet. She implores him. She stood before him. In humility, emotionally, and unselfishly, she said, Lord, Xerxes, if it pleases you, if I have found favor, if it seems the right thing to do, would you please do this? And I identify with my people. How can I endure, verse 6, this happening to them? The destruction, quote, of my countrymen. So at this point, everything rises and falls on what, quote, pleases the king. And there's a repetition in here in verse, verses 3 through 6. There's a repetition of, particularly verse 6, how can I endure? How can I endure? God simply wants us to do what's right. We take it to him. We leave it with him. So she pleads. Now let's look at your power. Verse 7. King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, that estate, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree. I'm going to pause for a moment before we read verse 8. Well, I'll read verse 8 and then we'll pause. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews, as you please, in the king's name. You're the prime minister, and seal it with the king's signet ring, which you bear, for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke the law of the Medes and the Persians. Oh, wait a minute. We've got that other one in force. Verse 7 for just a moment. I want you to look at it again with me. Look at verse 7. King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Look, I'm going to kind of paraphrase this so you'll get the message in vernacular we might understand. Look, I've given you, Esther, the house of Haman, that in vast estate, I've given you that, and I've hanged Haman on the very gallows he was going to use to hang Mordecai. Here's the message inherent in that statement by Xerxes. Look, I've given you everything a person could want. What else do you want? You ever say that to your kids? I've given you that estate. You're the prime minister of Persia. What else do you want? I can't violate a law of the Medes and the Persians. So then he has a solution. I can't alter Haman's decree, but you can write another decree and we'll make it the law of the Medes and the Persians. And let's see what happens. But no one can revoke it. This new decree either. So Mordecai's decree, verse 9, the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. In other words, all over the kingdom of Persia, which was vast. He wrote in the name of King Xerxes. He sealed it with the king's signet ring, and he sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses bred from Swiss steeds. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in... Verse 11 is very key, so 
hang with me here. By these letters, Mordecai's decree through Xerxes, the king Xerxes permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together, and this is the key phrase in understanding the rest of the book, protect their lives. To destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would, quote, assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day in all the provinces of King Xerxes, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of the document was to be issued in decree in every province and published for all people, so the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on the royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. That's their capital during this time of the year. Okay. So Mordecai gives a decree. It goes out everywhere. It's written and sealed and sent by Xerxes' authority. And the key is it permits the Jews who were under a death sentence that all of Persia in eight months was literally going to just attack them and annihilate them. The new decree permits them to defend themselves as much as they want to and to destroy the enemies that are coming to kill them. It does not permit them to indiscriminately start murdering people like Haman's decree did. It permits them to defend themselves against their enemies. And if they choose to, when they win, they can plunder their enemies as well. We'll talk more about that next time. Okay. So they are to defend, not to, necess- not to be murdering indiscriminately. It's not revenge. It's them defending themselves. We operate as believers under the auspices of the God of the universe. And we've been given not a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. God is in control, not me. He is. So finally, this this section, a privilege. Look at verse 15. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel, blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now let's focus on this because I really want as we go to the end of this section of Esther. We need to understand our privilege. We talked about our position earlier and they're very much tied together. Look at verse 15. What is Mordecai wearing in verse 15? Remember God has completely reversed the circumstances has blessed Mordecai and Haman beyond belief both with power and prestige and they're filthy rich, let's be honest. And he comes out, notice what he's wearing. Quote, royal apparel, a crown of gold, fine linen and purple. The picture here is he's wearing regal, royal attire because he's on the king's business. Again, back to the allegory and spiritual application for us. I love the the study of covenant in the Bible. In a few moments, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. 
And as Jesus instituted that, how did he describe it? This is the new covenant in my blood, as opposed to the old covenant in the blood of bulls and goats. We are under the covenant, the new covenant, by the sacrifice, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the spilling of his blood, which bought our salvation. And the picture here is who we are as those who have been bought by the blood of Christ. We are, quote, a royal priesthood. All believers are priests to the world. We are identified, and that's the picture here, Mordecai is identified as speaking on behalf of the king by what he wore. We are identified as children of the king, speaking on behalf of the king of kings, because we have identified, here's the way it's described in the New Testament, when I'm born again, I exchange robes with Christ. He's, he gives to me his robe of righteousness. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I'm given it because I find favor, grace. Picture in Esther. The king finds favor and grants to them. We get, because of the grace of God, he bestows his favor on us. And when I enter into a relationship with God through salvation, trusting Christ to save me, he gives me his robes of righteousness. And by bearing those robes, I am identified as being in Christ. Last week we watched Josh get baptized. And the picture of baptism is I identify with Jesus Christ. In this particular case, he was immersed. I identify death, burial, resurrection. I'm in Christ. If he was Presbyterian and he was sprinkled, I'm identified by the sprinkling of the Holy Spirit in my heart. Methodists would pour on him. The Holy Spirit is poured out on us. They all picture the same thing. I am, the word literally means in the New Testament, I am spiritually immersed into Christ. And here's the idea of the picture. That's why this is so important. The word that's used in the picture in the New Testament is baptism is this. You take a, you take a garment, and, let's say, and it's, let's say it's white. You want it to be purple. You would take that garment and you would soak it in purple dye so that every fiber, every thread in that garment would absorb what? The purple dye. And when you brought it out of the vat, what color would it be? Because it's now royal. When I'm born again, I am immersed in Jesus Christ. And I am raised to new life in Christ. And God no longer sees a sinner in rebellion against him. He sees a sinner wearing the robes of righteousness saved by Christ that's been adopted into his family. I'm his boy now. Now, is he always happy with his boy? I can promise you he's not. But do I ever stop being his boy? For good or bad, I'm his. Had somebody called me the other day and said, are you Ricky Lockley's brother? And I said, it depends. He's my brother. My children are my children. My grandchildren are my grandchildren. And Mary has to say he's my husband, even though 
He needs to be quiet. He's still my husband. It's such a passion for me, and I hope you get this message, what covenant means. Quick example in the Old Testament. David and Jonathan were covenant brothers. Jonathan's father was Saul, the king, who was trying to kill David. And once Jonathan realized his dad was trying to kill his covenant partner, here's the picture. They exchanged robes. They exchanged belts. They exchanged items, articles, to identify. Even though Jonathan was Saul's son, David was his identified covenant partner. And he said, David, your enemies have become my enemies. Your needs have become my needs. That's the picture of being in Christ. Our privilege to be his ambassador, to be his children, to be his priesthood. We are, quote, a kingdom of priests. To say to the world, Jesus is the one who died in your place. Who wants to redeem you. You get the robes of righteousness. The Bible puts it this way. We're raised from, quote, death to life. New identification. And then you get to verse 15 through 17. As you read that, there's rejoicing everywhere. I bet there was. They've gone from a death sentence, we're going to be wiped out, to we can defend ourselves and we're going to be okay. There's rejoicing in the city of Shushan. Jews and Gentiles. We talked about before, the Jews were massive, they were everywhere, and they were a vital part of Persia. And now we don't have to kill them. They needed them. Jews and Gentiles, their fellow citizens, were going to be okay. Haman had been hard and cruel. But Mordecai was not Haman. And the new decree was of God. Verse 16, the Jews had light and joy and gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, you see it again, joy, gladness. And here's the picture. Hope had been restored. You've heard me say it many times over the years. My favorite word in the Bible to describe being a Christian is the word hope because it means confidence in what I expect to happen. And they had had their hope restored. And next week we're going to see the Feast of Purim is a result of this moment in time in history in the Jewish community, nation. They still celebrate Purim to this day. It was in February 25th, 26th this year. They celebrate it, but by by the giving of gifts, by celebrating with joy and gladness, because their nation was saved. We celebrate every day new hope in Jesus Christ, the new covenant, because I've been saved, you've been saved, and we, the church, have been saved. Now notice verse 17, it's kind of cool, and then we're going to look at these principles and we're going to be done. Verse 17. Many people became Jews. I love that. But notice why. These are Gentiles. Many people became Jews. Why? Because of the fear of the Jews. Now, they're not afraid. In, in one sense, yes, it's true. There were going to be battles. But they, they're deciding to convert to Judaism. Why? Because somebody's helping these Jews out that's more powerful than Xerxes, and they say it's their God. Now, remember, the name of God's not mentioned. But the implication is what? They got a little help from somewhere because they were out. 
And now suddenly they're on top of the world. Their God must be real. Fear of the Jews. The picture is they've been delivered. The picture for us is we've been delivered. The Bible says from the law of sin and death by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we want other people around us to see it because so they'll have fear of our God. Not fear he'll get me even though one day they'll stand before him as judge and that's part of it that's not it we want them to have what the word fear means it's respectful reverential awe we need people to see who our God is I don't I hate to embarrass my wife but I will she's sitting back there in her cove a living picture November and December of last year she could not have done that And God has miraculously brought her physically to this point. Because he's God. And he can do things like that. There are many, we could go around the room, there are many examples. All I could do is examine history. And the thing you notice is, even today, the little nation of Israel, second most powerful nation on planet Earth, because God's not through with them yet. He's God. And you better have a healthy fear of him or you will be judged by him. And so the last point, and this is so critical, so hang with me and then we're going to share communion together. These principles that that I want you to take away from this, principles from God and his word about how we deal with our enemies, all that we've talked about. Number one, you, you see them there on your handout, bullet points. Number one, you take them to God. We talked about that last week. Number two, you turn them over to God. We talked about that last week. And now maybe most importantly today is you trust God to deal with them. For just a moment, I want you to flip back in your Bible. I know it's hard to ask you to turn to two books. Actually flip over in your Bible to the book of Psalms. Psalm 18. Got Job, you're there. Psalm 18. Verse 1. You take them to God, you turn them over to God, and you trust God to deal with them. His time, his way. Psalm 18, verse 1. I just want you to follow along as we read this together. Psalm 18, verse 1. David, speaking, writing. And this is after God had delivered him from the hand of Saul and he, to, to murder him. David says, I... Excuse me. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Drop down to verse 27. Verse 27. For you will save the humble people, but you will bring down haughty looks. Verse 47, excuse me, 28, 28. You will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. Now, verse 47. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. He delivers me from my enemies. You lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. 
Now flip over to Psalm 25. Psalm 25. Verse 1. To you, O Lord, I will lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let, not me, let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those who be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I will wait all the day. There's so much throughout the Bible, passages like that in Psalms, and in, uh, uh, particularly in Psalms because it's, they're very musical, obviously poetic. But the theme of the Bible, you've heard me mention it many times, it's Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. Not a blind leap in the dark, not a jump off the building and go, watch this, nothing's going to happen to me. Well, guess what? You're wrong. Faith is I trust that God is there, he knows what he's doing, and he will handle this in his own time and in his own way. It's not my job to tell God what to do. There are false teachers all over our country and world right now telling people that if you do this, God has to do. No, don't take the place of God. You trust him. You submit to him. You ask, you request, Lord, please take care of my enemies. And guess what? He will in his time, his way. So here are these final little principles I want to make sure you get. Number one, do not fall into sin because of your enemies. Anger, malice, bitterness, desiring vengeance on someone, hating someone, wishing harm for someone, harboring evil in your heart, even if you never do anything. Here's why that's so important. And I've been there. I've struggled with this. That someone hurts you in a very painful way or someone you love dearly. And you can't forgive. It's hard. You, you, you harbor malice toward them. You want them to get theirs. You want God. You're living. You're trying to do everything you can to honor God. And, and they've hurt you and they're doing okay. You want God to get them. I've been there. Here's, I'm telling you, from the authority of Scripture and in my own personal life, and it hadn't been for Mary telling me what to do, and me listening, I would have struggled for a long time, this particular situation. She said, you're the Christian in the relationship. Why don't you act like it? And I did, and guess what? It worked. Here's the deal. The Bible talks about in Hebrews a thing called a root of bitterness. And if you let an enemy plant a root of bitterness in the soil, S-O-I-L, of your being, it will blossom, it will grow, it will expand, and you will just simply become useful, useless for the kingdom of God. Because you'll be bitter, pathetic, uh, self-pitying, wondering, why me, Lord? I thought I was your boy, God. I want you to do something. It'll eat you up. The Bible says that root of bitterness will create all kinds of pain, not just in your life, but around you. I've seen it time after time in people, in church, believers, and you just become useless for the kingdom. Don't let that happen. Don't let someone else who is an enemy of yours cause you to fall into that sin. And even if that enemy is you or Satan, 
Don't let Satan get that victory, and don't you give in to the flesh. So specifically concerning your enemies, based on the words of Jesus Christ, and I don't even have to quote them, you know it. He's, he commanded us, did not suggest, and didn't say, why don't you think about it, get a committee together and talk about it. He commanded us, above all else, to do what in relation to our enemies? Love them. Love them. I'm telling you, and you know it, it's hard at times. Jesus said, love them, ask God to bless them. Not ask God to curse them, ask God to bless them, and go out of your way, if possible, to do good for them. Give them the best you have, Romans talks about, that coals of fire on their head. Give them the best you have because that glorifies God. And by the way, why are we on the planet? To glorify God. So you pray for them persistently. You pray for their salvation if they're not Christians. Pray for their growth if they are. Pray for conviction, whatever they need. You love them. You love them. And you ask God to give you finally opportunities to witness to them. Earn that respect so you can talk to them. I'm going to share a true story with you, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to go into time of communion. In 1567, right before I was born, King Philip II of Spain appointed the Duke of Alba as governor of the lower part of his nation. This Duke of Alba was a bitter enemy of the newly emerging Protestant Reformation. You've probably heard of people like Martin Luther. The Duke's rule was called the Reign of Terror. And his council was called the Bloody Council because it ordered the slaughter of so many Protestants. It is reported that one man who was sentenced to die for his biblical faith managed to escape during the dead of winter. And as he was being pursued by a lone soldier during that reign of terror, the man came to a lake where the ice was thin and was cracking. He's, again, he's escaping. Somehow he managed to get safely across the ice, but as soon as he reached the other side, he heard his pursuers screaming. The soldier had fallen through the ice and was about to drown. At the risk of being captured, tortured, and eventually killed, or of being drowned himself, the man went back across the lake and rescued his enemy because the love of Christ constrained him to do it. He said he had no other choice if he was to be faithful to his Lord. Now, I'm not telling you that I would have gone back across and done that. But what was the testimony of that guy to the enemy that was pursuing him? We have to be above the fray and bigger than those around us because we're children of God. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, as we get ready to enter into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper, I pray we would simply remember who our Lord is and that he commands us to love our enemies, to be Christ-like toward them, to let them know that Jesus is real. It's not just our religion and just a game, but he is our savior. He's our life-changing son of God. So for all of us here as believers, as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that we would take the time and examine our hearts, be real. Maybe the bitterness is in our soul that we need to get rid of and give to you.
Maybe we need to think about the people that we just hate. We've got to get rid of that. We've got to love them because Jesus did. And he tells us to love and to forgive as we've been forgiven. Completely, fully, and without conditions. And Lord, maybe there are people we just literally have to go to and love. Maybe do an act of kindness towards to show them we, we care, that we love them. So I just pray that this will be a time of self-examination, it's supposed to be, and then celebration of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. What I would like you to do as the worship team leads us, you take this time, you spend it, you are the Lord, just praying, examining your heart, and at, at the end of the time when they're through, I'll come to up and we will share the elements together.
have to open mine beforehand. I wouldn't get it open. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, get your bread out. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. And then Paul said, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We proclaim it corporately as the body of Christ. And we individually proclaim it in our lives every day that we are individually children of God, corporately the body of Christ, and that we want our world to know that. And even people who hate us, we want for them what we have in Jesus Christ. You have the microphone, my brother. Let you come close us out in prayer. A couple of things I'll share with you and then let Rhett close us in prayer. Number one, I just want to thank you again for your faithfulness and, and giving and all that we do. We've got a lot going on and, uh, as we go through the year and just how God has made Next Door possible. And as we say every week, we're getting really close to starting actual tearing apart and construction. We're really excited about that. That someone called me this week, a pastor from another church, and uh, he was just really excited for us that we were going to uh, increase our footprint out here, to use a term that's popular. And uh, I know our student ministry is going to be happy that they'll have a place big enough to do what they want to do. So we're, we're thrilled about that. And you just continue to pray and faithfully continue to give so we can do. You guys have been great, and I just want you to know uh, uh, I love you, and it's an honor for me to serve here. I know Rhett's got a, Rhett and Lauren got a tough day tomorrow. The sweet little girl's got to have surgery on a broken arm. and uh, That's no fun. No fun, but God will see them through. You close us out in prayer, brother. I just want to um, remind everybody also when you came in on your, on your handout, as we're getting into to summertime, there's a lot of things going on, a lot of trips, whether our, our college ministry or our Paramedics on duty.
Does it make me come here often? And the answer is no. No. <laughs> oh, clouding up. Janice Lee.